Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Last week we began looking at the example of Abraham and his wife Sarah. Today we are going to continue looking at the example of Abraham and his descendants. We will be looking specifically at verses 17 through 22 this morning, but we will read verses 8 through 22 in order to see the entire passage in its context. So as you have found your place in God's word, if you'll stand with me as we read together Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 8. And going through verse 22, Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 22. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray that this morning your spirit would help us to understand the scriptures and help us to apply them to our lives God, we pray you would protect us from the evil one who would desire to snatch away your word from the hearts of your people before they could ever hear and believe. Father, I pray that your word would take root in all of our hearts. I pray, especially for those who are here who are listening but who have never trusted in Christ, who are still lost in their sins. God, I pray that you would cause them to see and believe God, create in them faith. God, we pray you'll build up your church this morning. 
We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. This world is a scary place. Um, Sometimes it seems as if there is danger lurking around every corner. There's danger in every dark room. There's danger under every bed. Everyone in here, to a greater or lesser degree, is is afraid of something. Uh, Jay has been pretty open about his uh, galeophobia. Fear sharks. I have mild arachnophobia, fear of spiders, mild claustrophobia, fear of enclosed spaces, but really it's my ophidiophobia. I probably butchered that. It's fear of snakes. <laughs> that really uh, gets my heart racing. Now you all know how best to scare me. (laughs) That's how much I trust you guys. (laughs) Fear of heights, fear of flying, these are all um, common fears. But there are actually a a plethora of less common fears. Electorophobia. It's a fear of chickens. I promise you, I know a girl who is afraid of chickens. You probably have all experienced nomophobia. It's the fear of being without your cell phone. How about hippopotamonstrosaquipadaliaphobia? It's the fear of long words. I'm not making this up. We laugh, but someone walked into a psychiatrist's office one day and said, I have an irrational fear of long words. <laughs> and this, sadi- this sadistic doctor <laughs> gave that fear that name. We all have fears. Things that can cause anything from mild discomfort all the way to things that cause us to to freeze up or to to sweat, to start shaking, to to shed tears. Some of us have more common fears, more rational fears, like glossophobia, fear of public speaking, right? People are more afraid of public speaking than they are of death. While other people have more irrational fears, like phasmophobia, fear of ghosts. If you have a fear of ghosts, come and talk to me after the sermon. We can, we can talk about that. Some of these, these lesser, these less common fears, these more irrational fears, they may indicate other physical or, or mental or spiritual issues. But one fear we probably all experienced at some point in our lives is chronophobia. It's the fear of the future. At some point, all of us have been afraid of the future, of, of the passing of time, because whether, whether we like it or not, time is inexorably passing away. Jay has addressed this from Ecclesiastes. You can't stop or control the flow of time, and this can create great fear and anxiety. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my health? 
or my money or my job, my retirement, my family? What's going to happen to me in the future? We all at some point are going to ask these questions. At some point, we all are going to experience this fear of the future. The recipients of the book of Hebrews, they're experiencing a fear of the future. They've trusted Christ. They believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. They've identified as Christians. And now they're experiencing a level of, of opposition and hostility that's causing them the doubt that's that's tempting them to abandon Christianity and return to the Jewish sacrificial system. You can look back at chapter 10 and look at verses 33 and 34 and see some of the things that they're experiencing. They're, they're, some of them are being publicly exposed to public reproach and affliction. That's just another way of saying they're being dragged into the streets and being beaten. They're being, they're being maligned. They're being made fun of. Some of them are being thrown in the prison because they're Christians. Some of them are having their property plundered. They're, they're having their property confiscated. And what's the biggest fear that, that, that would be driving them to abandon Christianity? What's going to happen to me in the future? What's going to happen to me tomorrow? They, they beat us today. Will they kill us tomorrow? What's going to happen to my family if I get thrown into prison? If my property is confiscated, will I be able to care for them? Will, will we even have a place to live? We can all understand this kind of fear. Because even though we haven't experienced that level of hostility for being Christians, we all understand the fear of the future. We all understand those questions of what's going to happen to me tomorrow? How, how am I going to be taken care of? How is my family? How, how are my wife, my kids, how are they going to be taken care of? What does the apostle say in chapter 10, verse 36? You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He tells them that, that regardless of, of these, these things that are happening to you, and, and regardless of, of the fears that you might have for the future, Persevere so that no matter what happens tomorrow, you'll receive the promises of God. Don't shrink back, he says. Because as we saw in the last verse of chapter 10, we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. There is a, a host of saints who have lived by faith, confidently obeying God, believing his promises. And even though they haven't received them yet, they, they persevere. We saw Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, examples of those who kept going despite an uncertain tomorrow because they knew that God would be faithful. So today we are continuing walking through what's commonly called the Faith Hall of Fame, Hebrews chapter 11. We started looking at Abraham last week, but today we're going to look at Abraham once more, but we're also going to look at Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, Abraham's descendants, those who verse 9 called his co-heirs, those who 
we're, we're also sharing in the promises. And what's important in the examples given today is that each story is taken from the latter part of these, their lives. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. The four examples we're going to see today, all of the examples that are given here in this passage are at the end of their lives. Each of the men we're looking at today, they're, they're, they see the finish line. They will, as verse 13 tells us, die in faith, not having received the things promised. And yet they don't give in to fear, but rather they have confidence for the future. They know that they won't receive all that God has promised in this life, but that doesn't discourage them. And it doesn't cause them to shrink back or fall away. And their example is for us. Because we can be afraid of the future. Spend too much time on social media and you might think there isn't going to be a future. But we are those who have faith. We are not those who shrink back in fear. We are those who are of faith, who persevere and preserve our souls. And this same faith that we see in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, may it be found in us today. Today we're going to look at six verses, and I want us to see three reasons why you don't have to be afraid of the future. Three reasons why you don't have to be afraid of the future. Because again, this, this chapter is not meant just for us to fill our heads with information. It's not just so we can do a character study of these men, so we can look at their faith and we can imitate them. It's so that we can emulate their faith. These men, they're going to die. They're not going to receive the promises in this life. But they're not afraid of the future. May the same be said about us. Let's look at Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Let's see their examples of faith. And then let's imitate them. Three reasons why you don't have to fear the future. We see the first one. In verses 17 through 19, this is the big one. This is the one that he spends the most time on, verses 17 through 19. You don't have to fear the future because God will raise the dead. God will raise the dead. Look at verses 17 through 19. By faith, there's that phrase that just, it, it, just, it just keeps coming throughout the chapter. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, Abraham. When he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This takes us back to, to the story of, of Abraham. It begins in Genesis chapter 12 where God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and tells him to go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. 
And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Five times we get the word blessed, blessing. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. And we have just a string of promises throughout Genesis, the story of Abraham. Genesis 13, verse 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Genesis 15, verse 5, look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. Genesis 17, 5 and 6, I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations. Big promises to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. And yet 25 years, 25 years passed. And after 25 years, after he'd called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and brought him to the land of Canaan, 25 years God finally gave them Isaac. And though Abraham had another son, Ishmael, God explicitly tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, which is quoted in Hebrews eleven eighteen, 18, it's through Isaac that your offspring shall be named. God doesn't ignore Ishmael, but he's not the promised child. He's not the promised son. Isaac is. Isaac is unique. Isaac is irreplaceable. That's why he's often called Abraham's only son. His only begotten. It's because he's unique. Abraham might have another son, but it's Isaac who is irreplaceable. And if God's promises to Abraham are going to come true, then they have to come true through Isaac. God explicitly says so. Q, Genesis 22. You can turn over to Genesis 22 with me. Genesis 22. After these things, the birth of Isaac... The promise that it's through Isaac that your offspring shall be named. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son. Again, he's unique, irreplaceable, the only begotten. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This is known as the story of the binding of Isaac. What's going on here? Well, we know that God is testing Abraham. The text explicitly says God is testing Abraham. Abraham has received the promised son. And so now God is going to test him and see if he's going to cling to Isaac or is he going to trust in God? 
Is he going to cling to the promise? Or is he going to cling to the one who made the promise? Who does Abraham want more? That's, that's the thrust of this test. Does Abraham want a son? Or does he want God? And what's amazing is that Abraham obeys. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. He goes. And like we saw last week in, in Genesis chapter 12, he, he obeys immediately. There is no sense of debate there's no sense of questioning or hesitating. He goes. He obeys immediately. This is astonishing. But, but we're told in, in Hebrews 11 that this is done by faith. And we're reminded of what faith is. Faith is not just a verbal confession. I believe God. It's not mental assent. Though all of those things are a part of it, real, true faith obeys. Faith works it does something and james the the apostle james he he lifts up this event as a prime example of this real faith james chapter 2 verses 21 through 24 was not abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son isaac on the altar you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, don't let verse 24 bother you and say, well, I guess I can't be reformed anymore. We still hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works. But James's point is what kind of faith justifies? What does justifying faith look like? It looks like someone obeying God, doing what God says. Abraham believed God in Genesis 15, and it was counted to him as righteousness. But in Genesis 22, we see what kind of faith it is. He believes the promises. Well, in light of him believing the promises, he's going to act by faith in those promises. And yet, look at what Abraham is doing. He's going to kill the child of promise. He's going to kill the child of promise. That's what we're told in Hebrews 11. He's going to offer up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. If Isaac dies, all of the promises die. We've got, to, we've got to grasp that. All of the promises that God has given to Abraham die on this altar. I don't know if there's anything in our own lives that, that can equal what's happening in Genesis 22. Yes, he's being commanded to, to sacrifice his son as 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 heart-wrenching as that would be, but it is so much more than that. Remember, the promises are that God is going to give Abraham land and offspring, and through that promise, 
all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. If Isaac dies, the fate of the world collapses. The fate of the world rests on Isaac. Because God has promised not just to bless Abraham and his offspring, but the whole world. If Isaac dies, what's going to happen to this sin-cursed world? Is God canceling his promises? Has God lied? There's a lot going on on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. And yet Abraham obeys. Why? How? Is he so callous towards his son? Is this what faith is? It's a leap in the dark without reason, without feeling. Because that's the caricature that's often painted of Christians. That we have this faith that, that is so callous and it's so unfeeling and we just have no logic and no reason. We just throw our brains out the door in order to do whatever the Bible tells us to do. Well, Abraham was just a religious fanatic who didn't care if he killed his own kid. That's not what's going on here. That's not the kind of faith that we see here. Abraham is not some religious zealot who is just sadistic and ready to kill. Yes, Abraham is willing to kill Isaac because ultimately Abraham wants God. He doesn't just want the things God can give to him. He wants God himself. But also look at verse 19 of Hebrews 11. This is the key to the, to the story. This is the key to understanding what faith is. Verse 19. He considered, it's where we get our word for logic. So Abraham's not throwing logic away. He's using logic. He reasoned. He concluded. We might say in Oklahoma, he reckoned. That God was able even to raise him from the dead. A lot has happened in Abraham's life before we get to Genesis chapter 22. If you just read the story by itself, you'll miss it. The, the story of Abraham and Isaac doesn't begin in Genesis 22. It begins a lot earlier. God has not only promised offspring to Abraham... But in Genesis chapter 15, God cut a covenant with Abraham. That's the, that's the background of Hebrews chapter 6. Abraham has received two things in which the writer of Hebrews says it's impossible for God to, to lie. God cannot lie. God cannot change. God has promised to Abraham he will have offspring. And God has sworn an oath to Abraham that he will have offspring. And Abraham is staking his son's life and all the promises that go with it on this. God has sworn that the promises will come through Isaac. And so if Isaac dies and God has proven to be a liar, then God will cease to be God. There's huge stakes on Mount Moriah. If Isaac dies and all the promises die, 
then the entire fabric of reality is going to be torn apart. Because God has sworn by himself. And he has cut a covenant with Abraham. If I don't fulfill this promise, God says, may I be torn apart. Abraham believes God. God has already caused life to come from Sarah's dead womb. Abraham himself was as good as dead because of his age. He believed that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead if that's what it took to fulfill his promises. And this isn't the author of Hebrews just putting something into the text. He's not just reading this into the text. This is part of the Genesis 22 account. We see that, that Abraham, he rises early in the morning, he, takes the, he saddles his donkey, he takes some servants with him, he cuts wood for the burnt offering. It says on, ver, on verse 4, on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham says, Isaac and myself are going over there, and Isaac and myself are coming back. How can he say this? He believes that God is going to keep his promises. And he believes that even if the knife falls, God is able to raise Isaac from the dead. And Isaac is coming down off of that mountain. That is true faith. And hopefully you know the rest of the story. If not, I'd encourage you to go and read the rest of Genesis 22. Abraham is about to offer Isaac. When the angel of the Lord stops him, he lifts up his eyes. There is a ram that's caught in a bush, and it's given as a substitute for Isaac. And so Abraham takes Isaac off of the altar and sacrifices this ram in his place. And then God reaffirms once more the promises. God is going to multiply Abraham's offspring. And so Abraham names the place where he was going to sacrifice Isaac, Yahweh Yireh, the Lord provides. Because he says, on the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Abraham didn't know how God was going to provide on Mount Moriah, but he knew that God was going to. He knew God was going to do something. And so the author of Hebrews says, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. It's the same word that's translated in chapter 9 as symbolic. Symbolically, Isaac came back from the dead, but the phrase is in parable. In a parable, he did receive Isaac back. And this really tells us what's going on with the story of Abraham and Isaac because the story of Abraham and Isaac is about far more than just Abraham and Isaac. Because God has promised to bless the nations through Abraham's offspring. He's promised that the whole world is going to be blessed through your offspring. But as we read through the Old Testament, we see that Abraham's offspring show themselves to all be sinners. They themselves are slaves of sin and death. And they're children of God's wrath, just like everyone else. Who will save this world from its misery? 
the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, gives us the answer. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. The story of Abraham and Isaac is not just about Abraham and Isaac, it's about Jesus. Because God promised to Abraham that his offspring, singular, was going to bless the world. It's not Isaac. It's Christ. And thousands of years later, on a hill not too far from Mount Moriah where Abraham took Isaac, another son would walk bearing wood on his back. But there would be no substitute or reprieve for this son because he was the substitute. And whereas Abraham's knife was stayed, the wrath and justice against sin was poured out from God the Father upon God the Son. Because as Abraham prophesied thousands of years before, on the mount of the Lord it will be provided. A substitute would be provided. And like Isaac, on Jesus hung all the promises of God. All the blessings have to come through Jesus. And so if Jesus dies, what happens to all the promises? And yet the knife isn't stayed. There he hangs dead on a cross. Has God canceled his promises? Has God failed? Of course not. Of course not. If, if that were true, then all the, the songs that we sang this morning are just bold-faced lies. Rather, it's the faith of Abraham come to fruition. He believed that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. And figuratively speaking, symbolically speaking, he was raised from the dead. But God didn't figuratively or symbolically raise Jesus. He bodily, he physically raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus is alive. Didn't we sing it? He's alive. Heaven's gates are open wide. He's alive. It was impossible for death to hold him. Because God had promised and sworn an oath. God was bound to fulfill all of his promises, and he has. He has raised Jesus from the dead. And now the Apostle Paul says, all the promises of God find their yes in him. And not just for him, but because God has promised to bless the nations through the offspring singular of Abraham, and because Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham who has died for our sins and has been raised, all of those promises belong to us. All of the promises given to Abraham belong to Christ. And for all those who are believing on Christ alone for salvation, who are in Christ, all of the promises of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob find their yes and amen in him. And we take part in it. All the promises belong to us because we belong to Christ. 
Romans 8.32, the Apostle Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We who have believed have died with Christ. We have been justified. We have been made right with God, not because of our works, but because of the death of Christ in our place. And we will be raised from the dead to live forever with Christ. God has and will raise the dead. That gives us great boldness for the future. You don't have to be afraid of the future. God is going to raise you from the dead. And the proof of it is that he's raised Christ from the dead. Because he lives, we who are in Christ will live also. There's nothing that the future holds that can cause us to fear because Christ is alive. And no matter what happens to you tomorrow or the next day or 20 years from now, God is going to raise you from the dead if you would but trust in Christ. Two more reasons why you don't have to fear the future. They flow out of the death and resurrection of Christ. The second one is found in verses 20 and 21. God intends to bless his people. God intends to bless his people. The apostle here skips over a lot of story. He skips over a lot of story. He jumps from Genesis chapter 22 to Genesis chapter 27. And then he skips from Genesis chapter 27 all the way to chapter 48 and almost to the end of the book. The reason is that he's not simply rehearsing Genesis history for us. You can go back and read Genesis if you want all of the stories. He's not interested in just rewriting Genesis for us. He's including specific events to highlight specific theology. And so here in these two verses, he's going to pair up an event in Isaac's life and an event in Jacob's life. And these two events have several points of contact. Let's look at them and see if you can see them before I call them out. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Point of contact between these two, that these two verses are meant to be taken together, much like we saw Abel and Enoch uh, at the beginning of chapter 11. Both of these men are at the end of their lives, both of them. Isaac knows he's about to die, so he wants to bless his sons. Jacob knows he's about to die, so he wants to bless his sons. They're both at the end of their lives. Both of the men are blind. Isaac is blind. Jacob is blind. Both want to bless their sons. Esau and Jacob are Isaac's biological sons. Jacob is adopting Manasseh and Ephraim from Joseph. They're going to become his sons. He's... Uh, dispossessing Reuben, and he's taking Manasseh and Ephraim as his sons. Both of them bless the younger son over the older. Isaac, going back to Genesis 27, is deceived by Jacob into blessing Jacob, the younger son, over Esau, the older son. But Jacob, in Genesis 48, He intentionally blesses the younger son over the older son. He blesses Ephraim, the younger son, over Manasseh. So we have these 
points of contact between these two. He skips over the details of these two accounts. There's a lot in these accounts that are not in these verses. But he focuses instead on the, the specific action of these two men blessing their sons. Now, what can we learn from these two verses? Well, the first thing we can learn is that Abraham passed his faith on. He passed his faith on. He passed his faith on to Isaac. Isaac passed his faith on to Jacob and Esau. Jacob passed on his faith to his sons. From generation to generation, the promises are being passed down. The promises were important enough to these men to share with the next generation. Abraham didn't just take the promise and just write it in his diary and stick it under his mattress. He passed it on. And the next son passed it on. And the next son passed it on. The acts of obedience were also shared. It's believed that Isaac was a young man when Abraham took him to Mount Moriah. He wasn't, wasn't a little toddler. He was probably at least a teenager. He at least knows... We've got the wood, we've got the fire and the knife. Where's the, where's the animal? He at least is a little suspicious of what's going on. He's at least a young man when he's brought to Mount Moriah. Abraham was alive until Jacob and Esau were about 15 years old. So he's, he's still alive, living with the family when Jacob and Esau are teenagers. So you can imagine the stories that were probably told around the fire. Boys, let me tell you about this one time with your grandpa. <laughs> Tales of faith passed down. Tales of faith passed down. These men, they set the standard for the nation of Israel, which was to pass down the promises to their children and to their children's children. May we do the same. But secondly, and I think the, 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 the main focus of these two verses, it's to remind us that that God's intentions are to bless his people. His intentions are to bless his people. R remember verses 13 through 16 from last week. These patriarchs, they weren't simply looking for some Mediterranean real estate. They were looking for a heavenly country. They were looking for a new heavens and a new earth. These two men are at the end of their lives. And they know they're not going to see the promises in this life. And yet they pass on the blessings. They pass on the promises. God has promised to me. And now I'm passing it on to you. Not because these men are giving up the hope of seeing these promises fulfilled themselves. But because they know that they will close their eyes on this life. And when they open them again, they will see their God who is faithful to keep all of his promises to every single one of his people. Not a single person to whom God has promised will be disappointed. He has promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from each generation, the blessings are passed down from, from person to person until now. The same promises are true today that were true 4,000 years ago. And they will continue to be true for every successive generation of those who have the faith of Abraham until Christ comes. The risen Christ is proof of God's intentions to bless his people. 
Abraham looked forward by faith and he saw Jesus' day. He rejoiced and he was glad. We see the risen Christ in the fullness of his revelation as Savior. And he stands as proof and our surety that God is zealous and faithful to keep his promises. His every intention is to bless his people. Not just some of them, not just, not just the super spiritual. Every single one of you who are by faith trusting in Christ will experience the blessings of Abraham. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Only good for God's people. All things work for the good of God's people. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How can we fear the future when we know that it is God's purpose to do us good? Isaac and Jacob knew this. And they passed on the blessings to their sons. We may not see them in this life. Our time on earth may be filled with trouble and with tears, and yet we can be sure of this. Christ has died for our sins. Christ has been raised from the dead. Our greatest enemy shall be destroyed. Jesus' death and resurrection prove that God's purposes and intentions are only to bless his people. Press on. Persevere. Hold on to the promises. Don't live in fear of the future. And finally, the final reason we have in this passage for why we don't have to fear the future is found in verse 22. God will bring his church to the promised land. God will bring his church to the promised land. The apostle skips even more story. He, he jumps from Genesis 47 and 48. He could have mentioned other parts of Joseph's story. He could have, he could have highlighted the, the faith that Joseph displayed through all of his hardships there. But he skips all the way to the end of his life because he's focusing on Abraham in his old age, Isaac and Jacob at the end of their lives, now Joseph at the end of his life. The very end of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, verses 22 through 26 Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. 
Genesis ends on a cliffhanger. I think we often forget that. We're, we're so familiar with how the story continues that we, we, we lose sight of the fact that Genesis is a cliffhanger. The descendants of Abraham have multiplied. There are 70 of them now. But, and that's quite impressive, seeing as they came from, uh, uh, they came from a, a family that started with an old barren man and woman. There's 70 of them. But that's still a far cry from the, the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky. But even more of a, of, a, of a cliffhanger, more of a problem is the fact that Abraham's descendants in the book, in Egypt, that they're outside the promised land at the end of the book of Genesis. They're not, they're not even in the promised land. The question at the end of Genesis is, how will God keep his promises? And yet his people still believe. Genesis 49 Jacob commands his sons to bury him in the tomb purchased by Abraham in the land of Canaan. He dies in Egypt, but they carry his body back to the land of Canaan to bury him. And the same in Genesis chapter 50. In Hebrews chapter 11, Joseph makes the same request. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Again, it's at the end of this man's life. He knew that he wouldn't see the fulfillment of God's promises in this life. And yet, he still believed that he would see them. And so he made mention of the exodus, that great event when God rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. But, but the word that's translated made mention here. In most translations, that's how they translate it, made mention. But it's the word remembered. It's the word remembered. At the end of his life, Joseph remembered the Exodus. And this, again, speaks to the faithful transmission of the promises from generation to generation. God had originally told Abraham about the Egyptian captivity and Exodus in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. The Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And Abraham passed this on to Isaac and Isaac passed it on to Jacob and Jacob passed it on to Joseph who at the end of his life in Egypt remembered. And he spoke a word of remembrance to the Israelites. I am about to die, but God will visit you. And he will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. They may have been in Egypt, but Joseph believed God's promise. He knew that God would bring the Israelites into the promised land because God had sworn to do so. God had promised and sworn an oath, and so he was bound to do it. And so Joseph, at the end of his life, believed that God certainly would. And so he wanted them to take his bones with them, where he could be buried in the promised land too. And that's exactly what they did. Exodus chapter 13, verse 19, Moses takes his bones with them when they leave Egypt. Joshua chapter 24, verse 32, the end of the book of Joshua, the Israelites bury Joseph in the tomb, along with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these great men of faith who believed the promises of God, that God had promised a land to them. 
And they knew that they wouldn't see it in this life, but they still believed that God would be faithful to his promises. And so they wanted to be buried there. Joseph made this request because he believed God would fulfill his promises. And he believed that those promises were for him. If he just believed that the promises were for someone else, why did he want to be buried in the land? He wanted to be buried in the land because he knew that when he was raised from the dead, he would see the promised land. He was looking for a city. Chapter 11, verse 10. He knew, he acknowledged, he confessed that he was a sojourner. Verse 13. But he was desiring a heavenly country. Verse 16. And he knew that God would bring his saints into that promised land. And we can have that same confidence. This world isn't our home. We were never meant to be satisfied with this life. We were never meant to be satisfied with this world. It's why we're so frustrated so often. It's why we're always disappointed and we're left wanting more. It's because we weren't made for this world. It's what C.S. Lewis said. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You weren't meant to be satisfied with the things in this world because you were made for a better world with better things to satisfy you. And the beautiful reality that gives us an unshakable hope is that God will unfailingly bring his church into that glorious promised land. Christ has died to redeem his bride and he will have his bride and he will have her with him. She will be with him in glory forever and she will be satisfied in a way that this world and its stuff could only hint at we will see Jesus' face. We will be with him. He will be ours. We will be his forever in that promised land that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph were looking for. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. It's that old Gaither hymn, Because He Lives. And it's true. It's true. We sing here sometimes, Now why this fear and unbelief? Has not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for us? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin now canceled at the cross? How shall we then fear the future when for the Christian, the future is so bright? It's so bright. How can we fear? God will raise the dead. God intends to bless his people. God will bring his church into the promised land. There are a lot of things to be afraid of. Even though we're in a landlocked state, Jay will probably go on fearing sharks. I'll go on being afraid of snakes. Christian, you don't need to fear the future. You don't need to fear tomorrow. 
In this world, you will have tribulations and sorrows. Be of good cheer. Christ Jesus has overcome the world. This means that whatever pandemic or political upheaval, we can face it without fear. It means that you can stand for a Christian ethic at work or at school without fear. It means that you can endure physical hardships and you can face health concerns without fear. It means you can share Jesus with others without fear. But if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, what does your future look like? What, what are you looking forward to? What are you pursuing? What do you think will satisfy you? Only Christ can satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. Only the promises that are found in Christ will give you hope for tomorrow. Will give you a future that you can march towards without fear. Won't you turn from these these paltry things of this world and look to Christ? He's died so that your sins could be atoned for. He died so that you could be reconciled to God as your father. He has died and been raised so that you might live with him in a new heavens and a new earth for all eternity and sin will be no more and death and pain and tears will be no more. You will see his face and you will be eternally satisfied Trust in him today. Trust in him today. Why would you wait? Why would you wait? Eternal satisfaction is waiting for you today in Christ. But if you die without Jesus, if you leave here and you get into a car wreck, or your heart stops beating, you will spend eternally unsatisfied don't wait trust in Christ today and for you believers cling to Christ cling to Christ as your greatest treasure and your greatest hope the one thing that satisfies you and then go and live boldly and confidently into the future. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ. And thank you for the promises that you've given to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph. These promises that still are true for us because they all come true in Jesus. And God, I pray pray for all of us, whether, whether believer or unbeliever, I pray today that all of us will have our, uh, our eyes open to see the glory of Christ, that he is beautiful, that we can live our lives for him, that we can live without fear because he is alive. 
God, I pray that my brothers and sisters will have confidence in the future because of Jesus. I pray that they will live lives of faith. That they will not shrink back in fear, but that they will endure, that they will persevere. Because Christ is alive. God, I pray for those who have never made a public profession of faith. I pray that even now your spirit would convict them of sin, would reveal to them the glory of Christ, that they would see in his death on the cross the only hope that they have for today and tomorrow and for forever. God, only you can cause someone to be born again. Only you can conquer the stubborn, prideful, sinful will of men and women. God, we beg that you would do so today. We pray that Christ would be magnified. Please do this. We pray these things in his name. Amen.